This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for Season 5 of Once Upon a Crime. This month kicks off a new season as well as a new series. We're headed into our fifth year of producing weekly episodes for you, and I'm so grateful that you've added Once Upon a Crime to your podcast playlist. If you are a new listener, I welcome you to our 170th episode, and if you've been a listener for a while, I thank you for your ongoing support. We've just begun the month of June, and that means wedding season. You know, no matter what's happening in the world, people will always continue to fall in love and want to get married. Weddings are filled with romance, hope, and bright plans for the future. After all the work and planning that goes into that special day, a honeymoon trip often follows to kick off the new couple's life together in wedded bliss. But as a follower of true crime, you know that marriages that begin with so much promise can sometimes go very wrong. In the cases I will present to you this month, newlywed bliss ends in tragedy and violence even before the wedding cake has time to grow stale or the bouquet begins to wilt. In this series, you'll hear four cases of newlyweds whose lives were cut short immediately after the I do's had been said, each becoming a victim of the person who promised to love and honor them until the end of time. This is Chapter 1 of Till Death Do Us Part, the case of Michelle Escoto and Wendy Trapaga. The phone rang at Miriam Benitez's home at 5.30 a.m. on October 14, 2002. It was early enough to cause her heart to pound as she reached to answer it. When calls come at unexpected times, a parent immediately starts to worry about their children, even those who may be adults. Miriam may have hoped it was just someone with car trouble or something minor, and not a call from a hospital room or worse. On the other end of the phone line, she heard the voice of her son-in-law, Michelle. He was asking her if Wendy was with her. She was confused for a moment, as much by the question as the early hour. Her daughter Wendy and Michelle were on their honeymoon. They were expected to return home today. Why was he asking if Wendy was with her? She told him that she'd last spoken with Wendy the afternoon of the previous day. Wendy had said that she and Michelle were back from their trip to Key West but they hadn't quite made it home to Miami yet because they decided to extend their honeymoon. They'd booked a room for one night in a Miami hotel near the airport. Miriam had told Wendy to be careful, and she would talk to her the next day. That was the last time she'd heard from her, Miriam told Michelle. She asked him what was going on. Michelle said he and Wendy had gotten into an argument and she'd left, dropping him at the hotel and driving in the direction of Miriam's house. He'd tried calling her cell phone repeatedly, but she hadn't answered. Now Miriam was worried. Asking Michelle to call her if he heard anything at all, she hung up. She wondered if it was too early to start calling around to Wendy's friends to see if they'd heard from her. She had a bad feeling. Truth be told, she'd never liked Wendy's new husband, Michelle. First of all, she thought he was too old for her daughter. When they'd met, Wendy was barely 20 years old, 
and Michelle was ten years her senior. He was a nice-looking man, and her daughter was clearly smitten, but to Miriam, he came off as arrogant and vain. Worst of all, he had a temper that he hadn't been shy to display in front of Wendy's family. Miriam had seen Michelle blow up in anger more than once, one time slamming his motorcycle helmet down violently onto the ground over some minor frustration. Her daughter had simply frozen place and stayed silent at his outburst. Wendy, her mother knew, was not used to seeing this kind of anger displayed and didn't know how to react. She'd grown up in a loving family and was a very soft-spoken and sweet girl. Wendy's mother had moved to the United States from Cali, Colombia in 1979. She'd settled in the Miami, Florida area and met Ernesto Trapaga, who was a cargo pilot. They'd married and started a family. Wendy was always a daddy's girl, so she was devastated when her father was killed in a plane crash when she was just six years old. After her husband's death, Miriam took a job as a school district secretary to provide for her children. She was a hard worker and well-liked and moved her way up to a position as a supervisor of after-school programs for a Miami-Dade elementary school. She later met and married Juan Benitez, and their family grew. Together, they raised five children. Wendy was always special. Perhaps because she'd suffered the loss of her father so young, she always seemed to be rushing to live life to the fullest. And perhaps because she'd seen her family grieve while she was still a child, she did everything in her power to make sure others were happy. Wendy grew from a precocious and fun-loving child into a beautiful young woman. In her teens, her big dark eyes, long brunette hair, and radiant smile turned heads. Even so, Wendy was never vain or selfish, but instead was focused on others. In her senior year of high school, she took money that had been set aside for her yearbook photos and grad night tickets and used it to purchase yards of red satin material. One of her classmates could not afford a prom dress, but Wendy told her not to worry and sewed the girl's prom dress herself so she could attend. Wendy took it upon herself to be her friend's own fairy godmother. That was just the type of kind, generous person Wendy was, her friends and family said. She was also active in organizations that focused their work on saving others from experiencing grief and loss. She became the president of her high school's chapter of Students Against Drunk Drivers and volunteered with the group Youth Crime Watch. Wendy always reserved the biggest portion of love and attention for her family and for those who were the most vulnerable and in need. She took in stray animals, nurtured them to good health, and poured out her love and attention on these abandoned creatures. Perhaps this was why she ended up with a man like Michelle Escoto. At first glance, Michelle seemed like a good prospect for a mate. He was older, good-looking, and athletic. He had big dreams for his future, too. He planned to own his own business and was taking steps to make this happen. But once you pulled back the curtain, it wasn't hard to see that Michelle Escoto was more style than substance. And he had some dark secrets as well. After Wendy graduated high school, she aspired to work in beauty or fashion. Eventually, she decided that she would really love to work as a makeup artist. She loved teaching others to apply their makeup, helping them to feel more beautiful and boost their confidence. In this role, 
Wendy could again play fairy godmother, turning Cinderella's into beautiful princesses and empowering them to live their dreams. To learn the skills she needed to work in the beauty industry, Wendy enrolled in La Belle Beauty Academy in Miami. It was there that she met Michelle Escoto in February of 2002. 30-year-old Michelle enjoyed all the attention he received as one of the few male students at the beauty school. He quickly noticed the beautiful Wendy among his classmates. Before long, he was telling her about his plans to open his own beauty salon and then a chain of beauty salons. He had big dreams, and Wendy was impressed with this older man who seemed to be filled with confidence and swagger. He rode a motorcycle to school, and the girls flocked to his charm and flirtatious manner. Wendy began to feel special that he had singled her out for special attention. Soon, they were dating, and within months, Wendy had moved out of her parents' home and in with Michelle. But Michelle had a past that he was keeping a secret from his new girlfriend. First of all, he had a criminal record. Six years earlier, he'd been charged with armed robbery after holding up a pharmacy. He had also been charged with carrying a concealed weapon and fleeing from police. But his biggest secret was that at the time he met Wendy, he was in a relationship with a woman for over two years. Yolanda Cerillo was 28 years old and the mother of a little girl. She'd met Michelle at another school, the Computer Learning Center, when he had planned to make big money as a computer consultant and before he'd switched his career plans to attend cosmetology school. Yolanda and Michelle had been living together for over a year. Yolanda believed her relationship with Michelle to be exclusive. According to her, they had talked about getting married. But Michelle was focused on making his fortune first. Then they'd be set, he'd promised. But what Yolanda didn't know was that her boyfriend always had other women on the side, even while they were living together. But Wendy, it seemed, was different. Whether Michelle actually ever loved Wendy or not is unknown. He lied to Yolanda about where he was when he started seeing Wendy, but continued to live at Yolanda's apartment and even acted as the father figure to her daughter. However, in July of 2002, just a few months after meeting Wendy, Michelle broke up with Yolanda and moved out. Devastated and not understanding what had happened to make him leave her, Yolanda began continually calling Michelle. She tried reaching him for weeks, but he would not return her calls. Desperate, she finally hacked into his voicemail and heard a message from Wendy telling him to, quote, hurry home, unquote. Yolanda couldn't believe her ears. He had not only cheated on her, but now Yolanda realized he had moved in with another woman. She needed answers and set about to confront Michelle. Wendy Trapaga's family had their doubts about her new boyfriend, Michelle Escoto. They felt ill at ease around him and felt he wasn't good enough for their sweet Wendy. By now, they discovered that Michelle wasn't employed but only attending the beauty school and talking about his big plans to open a beauty salon. He seemed to be a slick talker, but in reality, didn't have much to offer their daughter. Miriam was not thrilled when Wendy told her within months of meeting Michelle that she was moving in with him. She felt it was too fast and knew the couple barely had enough money to afford an efficiency apartment. Miriam also became aware that the couple couldn't even afford furniture and Wendy was sleeping on the floor. 
So she was really surprised to hear from Wendy that the couple had purchased a life insurance policy. Wendy was insured for nearly a million dollars with her new boyfriend as the beneficiary. Miriam thought this was strange, given their financial situation and the fact that they had no children yet. But Wendy seemed to be happy with Michelle, so Miriam tried not to criticize the relationship too much. Still, it made her uneasy. Wendy believed she and Michelle were in love. What drew the young beauty who could have had her pick of suitors to fall for this man, her family wondered. Perhaps it was because he didn't have much to offer that Wendy, as was her nature, wanted to help him. She'd always been one to get excited about other people's dreams and offer to help if she could. Maybe Michelle had convinced her he was ready to make his dreams come true and only needed her by his side to create that reality. Wendy, perhaps, envisioned herself helping Michelle get his business off the ground, working by his side in the salon, and helping him to turn it into a success. But while Wendy had always been a hard worker and knew how to live on a budget and sacrifice in order to make ends meet, Michelle liked to dress well, ride an expensive motorcycle, and party in Miami's nightclubs. He appeared to be living the high life, but in reality, he was broke. He'd hop from one idea to another, and instead of getting a steady job and working hard to build something, Michelle was looking for easy money. In the fall of 2002, Yolanda Cerillo was finally able to confront Michelle. She wanted him to explain why he'd left her so abruptly. When he wouldn't admit to meeting someone else, Yolanda told him how she'd hacked into his voicemail and knew he was living with another woman. Michelle had a quick answer. Yes, he was seeing another woman, he said, but he didn't love her. He told Yolanda about the $1 million life insurance policy. He said he was planning to kill Wendy or have her killed to collect the money. It was the only way he and Yolanda could be together again, he explained. Yolanda, at first, was shocked. But she was so desperate to have Michelle back in her life, she found herself listening to his entire plan. In a few months, he said, he was going to take Wendy on a vacation to New Orleans. He planned to make her death look like an accident somehow while they were attending the Mardi Gras celebration in that city. Then he would collect the million dollars, and he and Yolanda would be set. They could get married, start a business, or do whatever they wanted. And they'd be together. Yolanda still didn't like the idea of Michelle being with Wendy, but she pinned her hopes on the fact that he still wanted her. She had done nothing but cry since he left her, and she couldn't imagine her life without him. So she decided to go along with his plan. She would just have to wait until he could be hers again. So she was very surprised when just days later, Michelle called her with a new plan. He was running out of money, Michelle told her, so he needed to, quote, get rid of Wendy sooner. Yolanda agreed to help him plan the murder of her romantic rival. Just three months after Wendy Tropaga began living with Michelle Escoto, she told her mother they were getting married. Now, this was just too much for Miriam. She thought her daughter was moving too fast with this man they hardly knew. Wendy was barely 21 years old and hadn't even begun her career yet. Her mother and stepfather wanted more for her, but Wendy believed she was in love and she wanted to start a life with Michelle. Her mother did her best to hold her tongue, but Wendy knew she didn't approve. 
Miriam may have hoped that the couple would wait until they could afford a wedding. Perhaps by that time, Wendy's feelings for Michelle might have cooled. But no luck. Wendy and Michelle were planning to marry in October in a quickie ceremony at City Hall. Her family just couldn't understand the rush. Why didn't they wait and have a proper ceremony? Just days before Wendy was to marry Michelle, she told her mother she was pregnant. Well, now, Miriam figured, she must give them her blessing. A child needed both a mother and a father, Miriam believed. She knew how much Wendy had been hurt by losing her father while still so young. Maybe this is why Wendy wanted to get married so quickly, to begin her own family. But later, there would be much speculation about why Wendy had told her mother she was expecting a baby. It would turn out that Wendy was not pregnant. Had she just told her so in order for her mother to accept her impending marriage to Michelle? Some believe that Wendy was manipulated by Michelle into believing she was pregnant so she'd marry him quickly. Perhaps Michelle had falsified a home pregnancy test, some speculated. It seemed far-fetched, but later, when it was discovered he'd planned to murder his young bride, it was easier to believe he could be capable of such a thing. On October 10, 2002, Wendy Tropaga and Michelle Escoto were married at the Miami Beach City Hall. Afterward, they left for their honeymoon, planning to spend a few days in Key West. Miriam hugged her daughter and wished her well. She would say prayers for the new couple, but anxious thoughts kept returning to her again and again. Unknown to Wendy, her new husband had been spending time with his ex-girlfriend, Yolanda Cerillo. Together, Michelle and Yolanda decided that the best way to carry out their heinous plan was to drug Wendy with prescription pain pills. Once she was unconscious, Michelle planned to put her in the bathtub and hold her head underwater. That way, he reasoned, it would look like she had accidentally drowned. Michelle even practiced how he would drown her, with Yolanda standing in for Wendy using her own bathtub. Yolanda suggested Michelle hold Wendy down using a towel so that he didn't leave any telltale bruises on her body. After marrying at City Hall, Michelle and Wendy checked into a hotel in Key West and spent the next couple of days honeymooning. On the second night of their vacation, Michelle tried to drug his bride, placing ground-up pain pills in her drink. Wendy took a couple of sips, but said it tasted chalky and didn't finish it. The following day, they were scheduled to return home. Running out of time and growing desperate, Michelle contacted Yolanda. He was also out of money, but needed to carry out the plan before returning home. She forwarded him some money to book a room at the Miami Executive Hotel. Michelle then told Wendy they were going to extend their honeymoon for one more night before returning home. The Miami Executive Hotel build itself as a romantic getaway. Couples could choose to stay in various themed rooms like the fantasy suite complete with a full-size hot tub, the love suite with a clear glass shower in the middle of the room, and the candle suite with a king-size bed surrounded by candlelight and a signature love chair for, well, use your imagination. Or don't. I'd rather not. Michelle booked the $80 room with Yolanda's money and the couple checked in on October 13th. Wendy called her mother that afternoon to let her know she was back in Miami and would be returning home the next day. 
She told her that she and her new husband planned to go to dinner, a movie, and then end the night dancing at a Miami club. It would be the last time Miriam would hear from her daughter. After midnight on October 14, 2002, four days after Wendy Tropaga married Michelle Escoto, Michelle showed up at Yolanda Cerillo's apartment. He promised her that he would carry out the murder of his new bride that weekend in order to collect $1 million in life insurance, and they could be together again. But now Michelle was in front of her home driving Wendy's car. He said he needed her help. He had tried to kill Wendy the way they had planned. He dosed her with pain pills until she was nearly unconscious. But when he tried to drown her in the tub, she'd come to and fought back. He'd been unable to finish the job. Yolanda looked out her front door and saw Wendy sitting in the passenger seat of the car looking dazed. Michelle wanted Yolanda to follow him in her car. He would have to kill Wendy another way, he said. Yolanda got into her car and followed Michelle to a secluded warehouse parking lot located in the North Miami-Dade area. He drove to the back of the building and instructed Yolanda to drive away and return in about 20 minutes. When she returned, Michelle was walking in the street. She pulled over to pick him up and noticed his clothes were covered in blood and he was holding a tire iron wrapped in a rag. He got in and she dropped him back at his apartment before returning home. A short time later, Michelle called Wendy's mom. He told her the story about getting into an argument and Wendy leaving him at the hotel. He'd just returned home, but Wendy was nowhere to be found, he said. At 6 a.m., a sanitation worker called police to report a body lying between two vehicles in a warehouse parking lot. Police arrived and found a bloody and gruesome crime scene. A young woman was found beaten so viciously around the face and neck, she was unrecognizable. Identification found near her body identified her as Wendy Marie Trapaga, 21 years old from Miami, Florida. The coroner would determine that she'd been struck between 15 and 20 times with a heavy object. Her car was located nearby, and the tire iron was missing from the trunk. She had also been strangled. Blood spatter on the two cars her body was found lying between would determine that she had been murdered in the parking lot. A toxicology screen was done, and the presence of sleeping pills, the painkiller Percocet, and an anti-anxiety medication were all found in Wendy's bloodstream. The coroner placed the time of death between 3 and 5 a.m. the morning the body was discovered. There were two other items of note from the autopsy. Wendy had no defensive wounds on her body, indicating that she had been unconscious or merely so when she'd been attacked. A small mercy. Also, Wendy had not been pregnant when she died. Detective Maria Maderos began her investigation, and soon Wendy's new husband, Michelle Escoto, was brought in for questioning. The detective had already talked to Wendy's heartbroken family, who told her right away that they suspected Escoto. Miriam told police about the quick marriage and the $1 million insurance policy on her daughter's life. Maderos wanted to hear how Michelle would explain his wife of just four days becoming the victim of a vicious murder. She was immediately struck by his lack of emotion upon hearing of Wendy's murder. Of course, as we know, everyone reacts to traumatic news differently. But Detective Maderos filed this information away until she learned more about Escoto. 
He told her that he'd last seen his wife that morning around 5 a.m. He said they'd gotten into a fight after returning from a night out, and Wendy had driven away in her car. Escoto said they fought because he'd accused Wendy of lying to him about being pregnant. The detective thought this could amount to a motive. Was Escoto angry enough at being tricked into a quickie marriage that he'd murdered his new bride? However, it was just a theory, and she, as yet, had no evidence to charge him with the murder. She asked him to supply them with a DNA sample and also asked for him to submit to a voluntary polygraph examination. He refused both requests. As the investigation continued, it was discovered that Michelle Escoto had placed several phone calls to Yolanda Cerillo in the hours before the murder. One call had been made just a block away from where Wendy's body was discovered. They contacted Yolanda and found out that she was an ex-girlfriend of Escoto's, but Yolanda insisted she knew nothing about Wendy and had no information about her murder. Detective Maderos was sure that Michelle Escoto was a good suspect for Wendy's murder, and her family also suspected him as being involved. But without any physical evidence tying him to the crime, they couldn't charge him. Things may have ended there, but greed reared its ugly head. Michelle Escoto, of course, wanted to collect the million dollars in insurance money on Wendy's life. Two months after Wendy's death, he filed a claim. But since the case was still being investigated, the insurance company would not pay out the policy and instead placed the money in an escrow account. Michelle Escoto was furious at being unable to access the money. He was broke and felt he was owed these funds. He sued the insurance company to try and collect. When Wendy's family found out about this, they took Escoto to civil court to block him from collecting the money. They believed he had murdered Wendy, and if the murder could not be proven in criminal court, then they would at least take him to civil court to make sure he couldn't profit from her death. This would set off a chain of events that would be Michelle Escoto's undoing. During the civil trial, he was forced to testify to the events on the last night of Wendy's life. He made many conflicting statements at the deposition, which were then used by the Miami-Dade detectives to build a case against him for murder. In 2005, three years after Wendy's murder and without receiving a penny of the $1 million, Michelle Escoto dropped the case against the insurance company. The policy would eventually be paid out to Wendy's family. Because they had fought back, forcing Escoto to reveal his lies in court, he was finally charged with Wendy's murder. Michelle Escoto was arrested on a first-degree murder charge just three days after dropping his lawsuit. Michelle Escoto and Yolanda Cerillo did get back together after Wendy's murder. However, their relationship, it seems, couldn't survive the strain of keeping their terrible secret. Escoto moved back in with Yolanda, but the relationship was volatile. During one heated argument, Michelle grabbed her by the neck and began choking her. Yolanda would later say she didn't call the police because Michelle reminded her of her involvement in the murder. Before long, they split up for good. Escoto was arrested in 2005, and detectives worked on Yolanda to reveal what she knew. They knew she'd been in contact with Escoto on the night Wendy was killed. They also discovered that she'd been the one to pay for the newlyweds' last hotel stay. Finally, in 2006, with evidence mounting against her, Yolanda Cerillo agreed to cooperate with the investigation. She provided some information that implicated Michelle in Wendy's murder, 
but held back most of what she knew and did not yet reveal her own involvement. Years passed, but Wendy's family and the investigators to her murder didn't give up trying to get justice for Wendy. In 2011, in danger of being charged as an accessory to the murder, Yolanda Cerillo finally agreed to tell all she knew in exchange for full immunity. She would give detectives all the details they needed in order to put Escoto away on a first-degree murder charge, but she herself could never be charged with the crime. It was a deal with the devil, one investigator said, but one they felt they had to make. Finally, in 2014, a dozen years after Wendy's murder, Michelle Escoto's trial began. The Arakaki Michelle Escoto insisted on serving as his own attorney during the first-degree murder trial. He entered the court looking much older, with graying hair, a sallow complexion, and a face made puffy from high-carb jail food. He succeeded in making a mess of the proceedings with no legal training and only a rudimentary education in general. His opening statement was a rambling mess during which he never thought to state directly his claim that he was innocent of murdering his bride. Many of the questions he posed to witnesses were objected to and overruled by the judge due to his lack of knowledge of proper questioning in a courtroom. He became flustered and then angry when cross-examining the state's witnesses, including detectives, forensic experts, and Wendy's own mother. It made for a very tense courtroom, and Escoto's outburst became more menacing. He verbally threatened the Tropaga family's civil attorney while he was testifying and was held in contempt of court and sentenced to 30 days for that outburst. The prosecuting attorney finally had had enough of Escoto's tantrums and threats and angrily addressed the judge, saying she didn't feel she or her staff were safe. This defendant is a time bomb waiting to explode. He exploded once at Wendy Trapaga, and I do not expect that he should be allowed to explode to anyone in this courthouse. That's not enough for me to feel safe. It doesn't get worse than that until someone gets hurt. I'm not willing, I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to do it. I might not be able to proceed. She petitioned to have the courtroom reconfigured to place a barrier between the attorneys and witnesses and Escoto. This was allowed. Escoto claimed he had nothing to do with Wendy's murder, placing the blame on the fact that she left early in the morning after an argument. It was his theory that she had run into someone else that morning who had killed her. Escoto would finally allow his defense attorney to speak during closing arguments. During his statement, the defense would claim that Wendy was seeing several other men and had gone alone to a swingers club on the night she was murdered. But there were problems with Escoto's story, which the prosecution blew big holes through during the trial. First, he'd claimed that Wendy had driven off angrily, dropping him in front of the hotel at 5 a.m. But a food truck owner, who sat up next to the hotel every morning at 5 a.m., testified that he had not observed Wendy, Michelle, or even a car leaving the hotel that morning. Additionally, Escoto had told investigators that Wendy had driven off around 5 a.m., but the coroner's time of death was not compatible with his claim. Also, it had been determined it would have been impossible for Wendy to operate a vehicle with the amount of drugs that she had in her system at the time. Escoto explained away the number of calls he'd made to Yolanda Cerillo in the hours before Wendy's murder by saying he was calling his ex out of concern for her young daughter who'd been, quote, sick for a week, unquote. 
but a friend of Cerillo's who'd been staying with her that week testified that the little girl had not been ill. Escoto also claimed that he was unfamiliar with the area where Wendy's body was found, but investigators found a business card among his possessions from a motorcycle shop located in the area. It was discovered that he'd taken his bike to be serviced there several times. He also had no alibi for the hours of 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. on October 14, 2002, the time frame in which the coroner said Wendy was killed. But the biggest nail in Escoto's coffin was the prosecution's star witness, Yolanda Cerillo. Yolanda, on the stand for several days, sobbed through some of her testimony as she relayed every detail she knew of the planning and murder of Wendy Tropaga. She had practiced drowning Wendy in the bathtub with Michelle, she said. It was she who had ground up the Percocet he had used to drug Wendy. But Escoto found it too difficult to drown Wendy, Yolanda said, and had shown up at her home that night asking for help. She admitted to following him in her car as Escoto drove the nearly unconscious Wendy to the deserted parking lot. She had not witnessed him kill her, she said, but had seen his bloody clothes and the tire iron wrapped in the rag. She also told the court the rest of the events of that night. After picking up Michelle, she became so ill at the sight and smell of the blood that she had to pull over to the side of the road. She stopped the car near Biscayne Bay. Michelle left the car and threw the tire iron into the water. Divers were able to locate the murder weapon after Yolanda told them where they'd stopped. Michelle jumped into the water to wash some of the blood off of him and his clothes. While he was doing so, a police patrol unit noticed Yolanda's car parked on the side of the road in the dark. The officer pulled up beside her and questioned what she was doing in the area. Yolanda told the officer that her boyfriend was sick and had gotten out of the vehicle so as not to vomit inside the car. The officer believed her story, warned her to leave the area quickly, and left. Michelle gave his clothes to Yolanda before she dropped him at his apartment. She had discarded them in a dumpster on the way home. Michelle tried to bait and humiliate his ex while he cross-examined her on the stand, asking her at one point, quote, Do you believe I traded you in for a younger model? Unquote. She cried as she answered his questions and said that the murder would not have happened if, quote, you hadn't gotten involved with another woman, unquote. While being questioned by the prosecutor, Yolanda sobbed and said she felt worthless after conspiring with Michelle in Wendy's death. Escoto's attorney tried to discount Yolanda's testimony during his closing statement, calling her a scorned woman and saying that her statements had changed over the years. But it was no use. The jury deliberated for less than three hours before finding Michelle Escoto guilty of first-degree murder. The charge carried a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole. Before his sentence was pronounced, Wendy's family made victims' impact statements before the judge. Wendy's mother, wearing a delicate gold pendant etched with Wendy's photo on it that she'd worn throughout the trial, told of the heartbreak of never spending another Mother's Day with her sweet daughter never being able to hug or kiss her, start her career, have a family, or celebrate another birthday. Her siblings spoke about their anger at Escoto for taking their sister away for his own selfish reasons. Escoto, unmoved, still proclaimed his innocence. The now 42-year-old was led away in handcuffs to serve his life sentence. The Tropaga family sued Yolanda Cerillo in civil court for 
for her responsibility in Wendy's death. They won a $44 million judgment against her in 2013. Wendy's family told reporters that they knew they would never collect any money, but just wanted it on the record that Cerillo was also responsible for Wendy's death, and this was the only avenue left to them after she was given full immunity for her testimony. Miriam Benitez, heartbroken over her daughter's death, remained determined to see her murderer put behind bars. In the 13 years it took to finally see justice done, Miriam had started a support group for parents of murdered children. The pendant she wore in court with her daughter's likeness was given to her by members of the group. She honored her daughter by reaching out to help others, even in her own pain and grief, in the same way that Wendy had always put others first. Miriam Benitez was diagnosed with cancer soon after the trial ended. She died three years later, in 2017, at the age of 69. She was buried wearing the gold pendant with the image of her angel, Wendy. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I want to thank Murder Murder News for having me on to talk about my true crime origin story and discuss some of my favorite podcasts. You can see the interview by looking for Murder Murder News on YouTube or clicking on the link I provided in the show notes. I also want to invite you to join me for an exclusive discussion with Josh Mankiewicz on Thursday, June 4th to discuss the Dateline host's new podcast, Motive for Murder. The discussion will be held on Good Pods, the new podcast social network. Download the Good Pods app and search for Motive for Murder and submit your questions on the discussion tab before June 4th. You can also follow me on Good Pods to see my podcast recommendations and share yours. It's a great way to interact with your favorite podcasts and podcasters. I've included a link to the app and instructions on how you can follow me. All of that is also in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another.